Good morning, traders, analysts, and other followers of the energy industry. Welcome to our podcast. My name is Corey Stewart, and I'm a senior analyst with Infinitive, your go-to partner for energy analysis and data. I'm here today with Jim Mitchell, Refinitiv's Head of America's Oil Analysts. We're going to spend a few minutes each week giving you the rundown on what's happening in energy in the Western Hemisphere. Now, our format is likely to change, but for now, I'm primarily going to be covering South American crude oil, and I'll leave Jim with the rest of the Americas. So let's get this thing started. Now, I know we're all tired of hearing about COVID-19. I know I am. My seven-year-old twins complain about constantly hearing the word coronavirus on the news that they can hear in the house. But of course, C-19 continues to wreak havoc in the world and the energy markets. Let me set the stage for you. Now, I'm normally not going to go through a lot of economic material every time we have this call, but just, just something for this first time around. So using IMF as my source, not giving it any really great credence than any other economic forecaster, we expect to see a 3% contraction in global GDP this year. And so all of you know, different regions and countries will be impacted differently. Overlapping, overlapping some with Jim here, and including Mexico and the Caribbean in this number, Latin America is, is expected to contract 5.2% this year, which can be contrasted with the U.S. economic contraction of 5.9%. Pretty close as far as impacts go, right? Well, if you look to 2021, the U.S. is expected to grow back 4.7%, while Latin America, the IMF, expects a more modest recovery with 3.4% growth. Now, I know I said focus on crude, which I'm getting to, but the subdued growth in Latin America will continue to affect refined products demand, and that's something we're likely to cover in later episodes, especially products trade flows as it pertains to where Gulf Coast refiners find homes for their exports. All right, but back to crude. For those not intimately familiar with South America, the 12 countries on the continent, only five to six produce volumes significant enough to really get our attention. Brazil, Venezuela, Colombia, Ecuador, Argentina, and to a lesser degree, but if only for the moment, Guyana. Suriname produces some, Bolivia, Chile, Paraguay, and Uruguay do not. So we're largely not going to talk about much about those countries. But like I said, refined products and flows and so forth, uh, in the future, we might really hit on Chile in regards to products demand. Chile comes in as the fifth largest economy in all of Latin America. So turning first to Colombia, crude production in the country averaged nearly 886,000 barrels per day in 2019. It was largely expected to increase that average by one and a half percent for 2020 before being stricken with the coronavirus. In March, Colombia produced production averaged around 850,000, 857,000 barrels per day, I'm sorry. 3% drop from production March 2019. Now, using the Brent price as its guide, Columbia's National Hydrocarbons Agency has stated with Brent averaging $35 a barrel, 2020 production would come in around 850,000 barrels per day. Take another $5 off of that, and we expect production between 790 and 800,000 barrels per day. And regardless, prices in the range of $25 to $45 per barrel will lead to cuts in exploration activities. When the country expected to drill around 42 exploration wells, and now expects for only 20 to 33 wells to be drilled. With the exception of the Cano Limon, the bulk of Colombia's production is heavy sour. Much of that finds its way to the US, something we can see with ICON's O-Flow tool. The heavy sours are where we largely expect the cuts to come from, 
Once economic demand kicks back up, leaving complex refiners with less cost advantage supply to choose from. Now, looking at Brazil, I started with Colombia today, but after surpassing Venezuela in 2016, Brazil stands as South America's largest crude producer. In 2019, Brazil produced around 3 million barrels per day, which is over 7% more than it produced the year prior. Part of that increase can be attributed to eight new FPSOs at 100,000 barrels per day of production between October and November last year. Prior to the onset of COVID-19, Brazil expected to increase 2020 production above 2019 by over 300,000 barrels per day. Now, Petrobras, Petrobras has started shutting in some 23,000 barrels per day of production over 60 of its shallow water platforms. And the company expects to cut around 200,000 barrels per day this year in response to the global economic downturn. Notwithstanding economic cuts, at least six of the platforms in the Campos Basin have workers with confirmed cases of the coronavirus. And the FUP Oil Workers Union has asked for the ANP to suspend operations on these platforms. Implications? Well, the Lula grade has been popular among Chinese buyers, and more recently, independent refiners in China have shown increasing interest in Busios. So, as China likely continues emerging from C-19 effects before the Western Hemisphere, refiners there may not see availability of Brazilian crude grades that they once expected they would have. My final topic today before turning it over to Jim, Venezuela. Venezuela is in its sixth, sixth year of recession. Last Monday, Maduro installed his economy vice president, Parak Alassami, as oil minister. Alassami, just to, as a note, has been indicted in the U.S. on drug trafficking charges, but has long been a proponent of opening up Venezuela's oil sector to private investment. Though majors and large service firms will likely shy away due to sanctions, the hope is to turn around an industry that once produced 3 million barrels per day but has since fallen to crude production around 700,000 barrels per day. 700,000 may not be the floor, however, as production has been hampered further by demand loss, low prices, and now Venezuela's dry season. With continued fuel shortages, firefighters are unable to respond to issues, and there have been multiple fires that have reached oil infrastructure in the Orinoco extra heavy oil belt. So, like heavy, production, heavy crude production loss in Colombia, continued and new issues with Venezuelan oil production will likely serve to pull increasing volumes of heavy crude off the world market. Thanks all. That's all for me today. Jim, over to you. All right. Thanks, Corey. Uh, I will be covering Canada, the U.S., and Mexico. And as uh, everybody listening obviously understands, there's a lot of um, market dysfunction happening now. Uh, we don't hope to touch on all of it. Uh, we do hope to bring up some uh, information that you may have missed, and I think Corey brought up some great points. So let me start with Canada. Starting on the east side, as many of you know, there's been a lot of activity off the east coast of Canada uh, for production and new projects. We haven't seen this in a while, which makes this particularly interesting. Uh, the three projects that I will comment on, uh, Bay du Nord uh, has been postponed uh, until 2022, and that's mostly being driven by uh, Equinor. That project is Exxon, Equinor, and Sunoco. Uh, the Terra Nova extension project, 
We'll know more about that this coming up week as Suncor releases their financial results and their CapEx for the balance of 2020. Uh, Finally, the West White Rose project, Husky suspended that uh, probably for about six months or so. Heading a little bit west to Ottawa, the capital of Canada, Ottawa has introduced a bill in their legislature, uh, $1.7 billion um, to help the energy industry employees. And I think what they've done is a really interesting take on this. They're introducing this $1.7 billion bill, and it's designed for uh, oil workers who have been furloughed to clean up some of the abandoned or uh, furloughed wells around Canada. I think that's an amazing uh, uh, insight into a way to keep these folks working um, and clean up uh, some of the problems in the industry. Along that same line, in addition to the $1.7 billion, Ottawa's also introduced a bill for $750 million to improve some of the uh, emissions, uh, mostly methane, in some of the facilities around uh, Canada. Moving to the west side, um, I would be remiss if I didn't mention uh, some of the four big producers, especially as it involves uh, earnings season, which we are dead center in the middle of. Um, I'll focus on four of the bigger uh, Western Canadian producers, Husky, Synovus, Imperial, and Vermilion. We see some interesting trends happening here, something we haven't seen in a long, long time. Uh, Husky, for example, posted a $1.7 billion loss. Uh, I think we were all expecting these large oil producers to produce a loss uh, for Q1 and and likely for Q2. But it's where that loss comes from that is really interesting. So from Husky's $1.7 billion loss, $1.1 billion of it is an impairment. Uh, They call it an impairment due to lower crude. They also have a $274 million inventory write down. Uh, The impairment has to do with their LIFO layers being revalued. So what does that mean? So these big oil companies, uh, as they build layers, LIFO is last in, first out. As they build these layers, they get valued and it goes almost directly to the balance sheet of the company. When you reduce the the um, value of these, you reduce the value of the balance sheet. In doing so, it it poses a pretty sizable hit to the company as we're seeing with the the prices of these companies. However, it's setting the company up for a much, much better position as we move forward. Uh, Husky also mentioned in their earnings call that they need a Brent price somewhere in the mid thirties to break even. Moving on to Synovus, Synovus posted a $1.8 billion loss. Again, a very similar trend. Their operating loss, they said, was only $335 million. The inventory and the goodwill impairments, about $1.4 billion. They also said that they need WTI around $38 uh, to break even. Vermilion, once again, $1.3 billion. A $1.2 billion of that is a write-down in assets. So we're seeing this trend, and it's not just Canadian. I'll, I'll touch on a couple uh, U.S. ones as well. But we're seeing this trend in that the oil companies 
are using, and refiners for that matter, and pipeline companies, are using this downtrend uh, to, to take their punches now to be able to grow in the future. Uh, finally, I'll touch on Imperial. Uh, Imperial had uh, posted a $188 million, uh, that's Canadian dollars, loss in Q1. But of that $188 million loss, $301 million was, they termed a non-cash charge, which means that Imperial actually made $113 million in Q1. The point being is that it's not all doom and gloom in the oil industry. So let's move on to the U.S. West Coast. The, the biggest thing in the U.S. West Coast now is the, the asset sale between BP and Hillcorp. Uh, this has been going on for a few months. It's a $5.6 billion deal. It's for the Prudhoe Bay Reserves and the Trans-Alaska Pipeline. This deal was negotiated way before the coronavirus came up and the, the dive in the oil prices. The interesting thing now is that the deal is still on. We'll know more this coming up week as the uh, Texas or Texas, the Alaska uh, regulators uh, look at Hillcorp's plan to see if they are a viable company to take this over. But the $5.6 billion deal was a, was a $4 billion payment with a $1.6 billion deferred. What has been renegotiated is the $4 billion that was due now. Um, there's not a dollar amount out there of how much of that $4 billion is being deferred, but the, the quiet talk around the industry is about $2 billion of that is being pushed back into the deferred space. So a $2 billion payment now, and then a cash sharing agreement between BP and Hillcorp. Mergers and acquisitions in the energy business are not that uncommon. In fact, they're very common. This is granted a big deal, especially at this time. The interesting thing for me is the incentives for both of these companies. For BP, fairly obvious. They need to sell uh, assets, and they have, and they've announced a $19 billion asset sale program that's been going on, um, and they're, they're pretty clear about it. They want to support their dividend. That, that I get. The incentive on the Hillcorp side, I think, is a little more interesting. Why would this company want to buy assets that have somewhere in an upper 30s uh, lifting number, that's literally to get the oil out of the ground, uh, and get it to someplace where they can um, put it on a boat and sell it. Why would Hillcorp want to do this? Well, for those not familiar, Hillcorp is um, a company well-known for its ability to take mature assets and squash down production costs. That, I think, is their incentive here. This is a pretty big bet. If Hillcorp can pull this off, this will be a major, major coup for them. Moving on. There are a unusual number of ships hanging out around Long Beach. Long Beach is very Southern California. Uh, it's the very Southern part of the LA basin. I counted 21 ships this morning and one in port and one was ballasting, which means taken in water, which basically means it's empty. Of those 21 ships, it's not uncommon for ships to sit off the coast of California. What is uncommon is if they're not sitting in the lightering area uh, commonly 
called PAL, Pacific Atlantic Pacific Area Lightering. So of these of these ships that are full, it appears to me that there's about 15 million barrels, 15.6 million barrels sitting on these ships. Looking within Refinitive System, we can see some of the grades that are on these ships and how often these ships are being called to the dock and then pushed off. Instead of a ship going to the dock and fully discharging, which is the normal course of events, they're, they're coming on shore and discharging 100,000, 200,000 barrels and then being kicked back off the dock and sitting and waiting. Essentially, the refiners in Southern California are using these uh, ships as storage. And I think what's really unique about this is they have, a, they being the refiners, have a bunch of different grades on these ships. So as they need something heavier, they'll call in one ship. If they need something lighter, uh, lighter grade of oil, they're calling in another ship. Uh, incredibly, incredibly um, ingenious. So of the 15.6 million barrels, uh, that looks to be about two weeks worth of production as I see about 1.6 million in crude capacity from the refineries uh, in and around the LA basin. There's also 225,000 asphalt, um, much smaller space. So let's go to US onshore production. So a bunch of interesting stuff here, right? and this is where uh, I, I don't even, I, I can't even try to touch everything that's going on here. I just want to bring up a few points. So the U.S. Treasury um, has announced that they're going to provide bridge loans and emergency lending um, for equity. This is the first time that I'm aware of that the Treasury, the U.S. Treasury, uh, certainly in the last 250 years or so, has lent money for equity in companies. Still to be determined what uh, small to medium companies, what that means. Initially, they're kind of talking about 10,000, less than 10,000 employees and less than two and a half billion dollars in revenue, but that's still developing. Uh, there is a, a concern over the debt level in some of these companies. So even though companies may fit within the preliminary uh, guise of, of what they would lend to, uh, the debt load is is very much a concern, and that's kind of what's holding up this bill. Uh, one of the things. The other thing is, as you can imagine, this is very highly politically charged. Uh, that has yet to be determined how that's going to be settled. Some uh, earnings from uh, the U.S. onshore P uh, P66 uh, had a 2.5 billion dollar write down. Uh, Valero, $2 billion write-down, and it's all in assets. Um, Marathon posted a $3.3 billion. Of that, uh, $1.8 billion was goodwill payments, and $2.3 was write-down. So we're seeing a very similar thing in the refinery space as we saw in the Canadian producer space, is that these companies are using this, um, this event to position themselves for growth. With that said, Hedge funds are increasing their bullish position in both futures, crude oil futures, and energy company shares. Uh, we'll see uh, how how strong their hands are and, and what that means for the future. But it is it is creating some interesting twists 
in the forward curve for WTI. For example, the contango, the difference between the front month and a deferred month, is squishing, uh, getting smaller by a lot. I think that is um, that is surprising people a lot considering the storage position that we're in. On Friday, Goldman Sachs released a report um, that said that they are bullish, albeit patiently, uh, oil. Mercuria released a report on Friday uh, suggesting the same thing. So EIA, uh, EIA has oil production at about 12.1 million barrels a day. Anecdotally, we at Refinitiv see this number as something more like 11.5. So down from our peak of 13 million barrels, uh, EIA has us down 900,000 barrels a day. Uh, Refinitiv, we have down something more like 1.5 million barrels a day. My last point I want to make on U.S. onshore is a trend I'm seeing in private private equity investment. So private equity investment um, really created the uh, the midstream boom that we saw in the last five years. Some of that got overbuilt. Um, we're starting to see midstream or private equity now get into light processing investments, but arguably more interesting is that they're buying oil service businesses with ongoing cash streams. Uh, for example, the the uh, pressurizers that you put pressure down the hole, it pushes oil up. Um, any company that wants to get oil out of the ground has to have some kind of lifting mechanism, literally, to get the oil out of the ground. This is a cash cow that most of the um, oil services companies love. Uh, and it's, it's a little surprising that they're selling some of these businesses, and it's really surprising that private equity has interest to get into these businesses. U.S. offshore, um, I'm just going to touch on this. Uh, Diamond offshore, um, a rig uh, uh, maintenance uh, rig um, operator, uh, declared bankruptcy last week. It was one of their 11 subsidies. So the entire company did not go bankrupt. It was just one. And the reason they did it is because they weren't able to make a bond payment. So even though it looks bad, it's not really as bad as it looks when you dig into the details. Uh, just to give some counterbalance, uh, Helmer Campaign is another rig operator. And they posted a relatively small loss uh, 421 million, but more than that, something like 600 million was a goodwill impairment. So from a company that they purchased uh, a while back. So the net effect, um, Hummer campaign actually made money in Q1. It was the goodwill write down that forced them into a loss. Uh, a couple other things to note: the the Gray Oak pipeline is fully operational, 900,000 barrels a day going to Corpus. Um, also, the exports, the U.S. exports continue to boom, as I believe we were at 3.3 million barrels a day uh, last week. So then let's finish up with Mexico. Mexico is a, a very interesting environment right now. Uh, currently, they are, they being Pemex, are taking workers off the rigs as uh, as Corey mentioned, uh, it's questionable whether they have this virus under control. We're hearing reports of hospitals filling up. 
Um, and that is not going to help the recession that Mexico was in even prior to this viral out outbreak. So I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the $23.6 billion loss from Pemex. Uh, that is massive, massive by anybody's scale. In addition to that loss, they also have their $105 billion in debt downgraded to junk. This, this puts uh, Pemex and Mexico in a difficult situation. And the $8 billion refinery they were looking at building is looking to be a pipe dream now. It's creating a bit of a dilemma for Mexican President uh, Obrador. And it's likely forcing going to force uh, Pemex and Mexico to continue buying U.S. refined products, uh, mostly coming out of uh, Texas. Some of it does come out of Louisiana. Also, what's putting um, Mexico at odds with the Trump administration is that there's two companies in Mexico who have been taking Venezuelan oil, and not just a little bit, I'm hearing accounts of 24 million barrels in exchange for shipments of water and corn. Uh, this certainly has the attention of the U.S. Treasury as the oil for food uh, program is uh, alive and well. But the two companies that are doing this have not been authorized by OFAC, the Office of Foreign Asset Control. It's the Department of the U.S. Treasury. And there's some suspicion that there may be some drug trafficking happening um, with these with these shipments. So let me finish on the positive side with Mexico. Um, the CFO of Pemex, Alberto Velasquez, said that Pemex needs about $14 a barrel to break even uh, with its uh, with its oil production program. So with that, I'll pass it back to Corey. All right, thanks, Jim. Um, yes, yeah, so again, I want to thank you for joining us today. Uh, look for us here every week, and please feel free to reach out to Jim or I or anyone on the team uh, at Refinitiv at any time. Thank you.